0: Support for KQED podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.
1: From KQED. Hi, my name
2: is Astrid. We're out here today because we're trying to get out the vote for November 8th. Have you heard about the election coming
1: up?
3: Um what election
1: 22 year old Astrid Morales is relentless she's made it her mission to get reluctant young people in the Central Valley town of Merced out to the polls
2: yeah so midterms are coming up not the school ones the actual ones for the elections Oh, okay. um, yeah, I know no no don't worry don't worry um, but yeah there's lots of propositions that are going to be voted on and even like local elections as well uh, Do you
1: know if it's all your- In the Inland Empire, 19-year-old Elvira Aceves says when she talks to students, especially from vulnerable immigrant or BIPOC communities, she tells them they're not just voting for themselves.
2: We're doing it for people who don't have the right to vote. Whether it has to do with their documentation background or their incarceration background, we're doing it for people who can't do it.
1: Young activists across the state have been canvassing, going into classrooms, and pre-registering 16 and 17-year-olds.
2: I just feel like this generation
1: of like Gen Z, millennials, like
2: we're ready. You know, we're ready to take down the polls. We're ready to be the majority. It's our turn. I'm Sasha
1: Coca, and this is the California Report Magazine. We're gonna meet some young organizers today who say there's a lot at stake this election.
2: You know, we deserve a California that's equitable for everybody. Oh, hell yeah. No matter how much money we got in our pockets, no matter what we look like, for everybody. So with that being said, (laughs) yes, for everybody. Uh, So with that being said, you know, how do you feel about, you know, voting this summer? Are you you feeling pumped? Oh my God, I'm so excited. Hell yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, Do you know where you're going to vote already?
1: 18-year-old Kennedy McIntyre from Sacramento says a lot of her peers feel like their ideas aren't represented by people in power in Washington. She tells them, We can't start from the highest form of government. We have to start locally and really build our way up. And I think that's just a good way of reassuring people is that you have to take it one step at a time and go up. We're going to head to Nevada County this week, where students are taking that first step. They're mobilizing around a very local election for school board. Some of them are even too young to vote. But they're working to defeat conservative school board trustees who they say have failed to stop racist and homophobic bullying in schools. As KQED's Julia McAvoy tells us, these students in Grass Valley are trying to help elect candidates they hope will take racist and anti-gay behavior more seriously.
4: Thomas Groover was well into his freshman year at Nevada Union High last year when he hit his limit. The school of some 1,500 students is almost 80 percent white. Thomas is white and Afro-Latino.
5: I had a student say, let's lynch Tommy, um... And I had a lot of other friends have things said to them. And I witnessed a lot of things too. kids that were LGBTQ plus getting like rocks thrown at them at lunch, things like that. Yeah.
4: The frustration also built early for Anthony Pritchett, who is half Filipino, half white. In his freshman year, there had been multiple racist comments. And then...
3: I've been given a noose. Yeah. Wait, what? I've, I've been given a noose. Someone, someone tied a noose for me at lunch and gave it to me. I was just hanging out with my friends at school at, at lunch. Like kind of like a, almost like a casual manner too. Just like, oh, here's a noose, man. Look like, like how funny this is. You know, those microaggressions and macroaggressions are completely there. They're real. And that lack of accountability is also completely there.
4: Students of color say when incidents like this happen... Both students are brought into the office, but then the offender typically denies they meant to offend, saying, for example, they didn't understand the history of lynching or that calling someone a monkey or handing someone a noose would be harmful.
3: Racism has become quite insidious. It's it's quite stealthy.
4: Because, kids of color say, the offenders know exactly what they're doing. Yet, when students were brought into the office by staff, they were often made to apologize to each other. That's what Marley Anderson says happened to her last year. Marley is black and says a student called her the N word. Both students were called into the office by the principal.
5: She made me explain how I felt, which was okay, but then she was like, explain to him how the N word makes you feel, and made me explain to him racism and how being counselors felt. Like, that is not a 15-year-old's job to do who just got in this huge argument with this kid who's being racist and homophobic towards her. Like, that's not, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to learn.
4: Marley's parents moved her out of the district shortly after this. Students began organizing here inside the school library. They say their actions were inspired in part by the surge in activism following the murder of George Floyd by police in 2020. That summer, over 900 students and alumni, some now in their 20s and 30s, signed a document detailing the long history of their experiences with racist and homophobic bullying and harassment on school campuses. They presented it to the district. Superintendent Dan Frisella, who used to be principal at Nevada Union, says he read the testimonies and acknowledges the problem is real, but...
6: To call it a racist school is way too broad of a stroke. So um, we're trying to evolve as a community and um, As a culture, has some of it been accepted? Arguably, yes.
4: But the district did recently decide to launch an anti-racism and inclusion task force to try and create a safer environment for students. And that caught the eye of the Nevada County Tea Party and a new group calling itself Protecting American Ideals. Members like Judy Wood started showing up at board meetings, including this one, held in a wrestling gym.
5: Equity divides people by race and it ensures race-based equality of outcomes. It encourages discrimination. To get there,
4: let me give you an example. It may help here to know that Nevada County is one of the whitest counties in the state. Grass Valley was historically a mining and logging town. It was also a sundown town until about the 1960s, meaning if you were black, you were not allowed in Grass Valley after dark. In the 1870s, Grass Valley ran its Chinese residents out of town. The Protecting American Ideals Group convinced the school board to allow them to present an anti-critical race theory presentation at the meeting, saying they need to hear from quote the other side. That really upset students.
5: When I started asking her questions, Thank the you, questions sir. to the director of the school, she dismissed me and accused me of
2: being Thank racist you.
4: because Thank I you. was a white person. Hundreds of people on both sides showed up. Anthony Pritchett, the one who'd been given a noose at school, was a senior at the time and the student trustee on the board.
5: I'm
2: sorry. The last thing
4: I'll say is, as a result, he I watched the crowd head. of some 400 in horror. That was You're disgusting. Just You're racist. Sir,
1: your time is up. Please respect our board rules. Please respect our board rules. I was terrifying.
3: It was really, it was, it was, it was genuinely terrifying. We had um, our two vice principals at our school. There are these two larger men, and they were acting as like security, almost as bodyguards.
4: Anthony says some people tried to spread out behind the board members, which really got him nervous.
3: Bodyguards are like escorting people away from us. A couple times, like when things got very tense.
4: Conservatives were waving American flags. On the other side, anti-racist student activists, their families, and staff showed up in force and did jazz hands whenever their people spoke, since applause was not allowed.
3: That was definitely a, a, a catalyst for that cultural war that that really reared its head at, 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 in the districts.
1: You need to respect our board meeting. Yeah! The board is going
5: into recess.
4: In subsequent board meetings, student after student, including Thomas Groover, pleaded with the board to listen to students and approve a new, stronger anti-bullying policy.
5: The board can no longer ignore these issues regarding race and must set the precedent that nothing of this nature is tolerated. What is the new policy,
4: developed by students, done. staff, and the district, spelled out that microaggressions would not be tolerated and asked for parents of students committing those offenses to get involved in their kids writing a letter of apology. The board rejected it. Trustee Jim Drew.
3: I don't think that portion of the uh, policy amendment is a good one, so I am opposed to this uh, these amendments in this policy.
4: Students like Anthony say that decision was like a gut punch.
3: There's a lot of hope lost. It's like, where do we we go from now? And at that current time, it's like, well, nowhere. There's, it seems like there's nowhere to go.
4: And for students, this is where the school board election next Tuesday suddenly becomes much more important.
3: These elections really do bring some of that hope back because now we have a chance to put people into, put people that'll listen Into a position of power.
4: The students are backing three candidates. One of them is Anthony's mom, Olivia Pritchett.
1: We are so excited to have all of you guys here, and I would like to introduce she
4: and the other two candidates candidates held this student listening session where they told students they were on their side their opponents, the three candidates preferred by the conservative Protection of American Ideals group, declined to speak with the California Report magazine for this story about where they stand on the students' calls for a more strict anti-bullying policy and more education around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Anthony Pritchett is now a freshman at UC Berkeley. He's 18 and registered to vote.
3: So absentee ballots have been something that we've all been trying to figure out as new college freshmen.
4: He's in group chats with Nevada Union High alumni like him, who are confused about how to register to vote, get their absentee ballots, let alone mail them in.
3: It's hard for kids to find mailboxes.
4: So far, about 30 of them have figured out how to mail their ballots back. Some Nevada Union students, like sophomore Thomas Groover, who are still too young to vote, say they're putting up lawn signs, convincing their parents to vote, and talking with anyone they can about the election.
5: What's really at stake is your voice and ability to bring positive change. What's at stake is really the student's voice.
4: Students are the board's constituents, Thomas argues. It's not just about him. It's also about his seven-year-old sister, who he says has already had a student ask her, what are you?
5: I mean, for my sister, it honestly terrifies me that some, something like that was already said to her. Because uh, in a way, that's like, that's my little girl, too. You know, that's kind of my kid,
3: so...
4: There are no polls suggesting which way this school board trustee election will go. For many Nevada Union High students trying to make change, it is the last chance, while they're still in high school, to get things right. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy in Grass Valley.
1: This week, communities across California marked Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, with altars and processions honoring loved ones we've lost. In some of those ceremonies, you may have seen an Aztec dance or Danza Azteca group performing as an offering to the spirits and as a celebration of their lives. Reporter Sebastian Migno Buccelli has spent some time with Aztec dancers in San Francisco and tells us how they show up for their community, not just for Day of the Dead, but all year round,
6: you can hear drums from blocks away. You have to get closer to see the many different dance troops, each in their own matching indigenous regalia. Today is the coming of age ceremony for a group of five Latinx teenagers. They have colorful feathers on their wrists and crowns made out of corn husks on their heads. They're all wearing white knee-length dresses and standing in the middle of encircling Aztec dancers. It's one of many cultural milestones each year hosted, not by a family or church, but by an Aztec dance troupe. And there are five known Aztec dance troupes in San Francisco. Especially in the city's Mission District, these groups play a huge role in community members' lives. And for some Mexican-Americans, Aztec dancing helps them feel connected to their indigenous roots. Chabela Sanchez has been dancing in events like this for 30 years.
2: You were born in these traditions and this is what's going to surround you till the day you die. You will be surrounded by the ancestors and prayer in this way. So we're going to bless you with this ceremony.
6: For the dancers themselves, fulfilling this role is a big commitment. Sometimes they get called at a moment's notice to support families going through other life events like when someone's born or someone dies. Luis Gutierrez directs Danza Azteca Quechuaqui. He says heartbroken families request his group's spiritual services when they're going through pain.
4: Well, last night, somebody texted me
3: that one of the kids that grew up here on the street died. So they wanted to do a ritual for them, you know, burn some sage, some copal. For a ceremony,
6: dancers typically have to work about 30 hours with breaks for prayer and food. There's even one annual event in December, a Catholic tribute to the Virgin Mary, where Louis and his dance mates dance the entire day.
3: And we're dancing till one in the morning, after we've danced from 10 in the morning to two in the afternoon.
6: Like other dancers, Louis shows up for these events and makes time to practice at least once per week, even though he has a full-time paid job. Louis runs the popular mission bakery La Reina. Dancers like Louis and Chabela perform all these late-night celebrations in their free time. Showing up for the community is an unpaid job.
2: But we're not the same style, but when we're in ceremony, we're one. We dance together as one.
6: The dancers in Chabela's group, Danza Azteca Cetali, might seem like equals in performance. But Aztec dance groups themselves are organized in strict hierarchies. And here's how it goes. Each dance group has a sergeant. That sergeant reports to a regional captain. And the captains, they report to the highest ranking position in Aztec dance, an Aztec dance general. And that person is usually someone living in Mexico. Chavila's husband, Roberto, also a longtime Aztec dancer, says that the strict militaristic order of command helps everyone dance in unison. Danza represents the cosmos, and the cosmos is not chaos. The cosmos has an order. These Aztec dance higher ups, those generals in Mexico, they're the ones who set the rules and tone on how dancing should be performed and which events dance troops are allowed to participate in. And for a long time, Roberta says, elders have shied away from participating in political events or protests. They don't want to align themselves with politicos, he said, because somebody could be cool one day and the next day not cool. So you can't be as social-affiliating it with people who are wishy-washy, you know? So it's sort of like uh, the spiritual mission is more important than any political mission. Another big reason why many Mexican dancers have avoided protests is because historical violence has been etched into their memory. Over there, they have memories, of, once again, of people being killed. You risk your life standing up against the government. Roberto remembers the Delta local massacre in the days before the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico. Eyewitnesses say government forces opened fire on student protesters, killing hundreds. The tragedy and its aftermath solidified for many Mexicans that protesting the government could cost you your life. On top of that, there's been violence against indigenous people, including dancers, since colonization. During the early years of bringing the dancer out to the public, people would get attacked and jailed and killed for practicing these traditions. But Chabela says in the US, many dancers see performing as an inherently political act because they are reclaiming their indigenous cultural identity. And even at overtly political events, Many local Aztec dancers don't have the same fear of repercussions for participating.
2: For the most part, I think a lot of the groups do participate in community social justice events.
6: Like the Indigenous Peoples Day Sunrise Gathering or May Day. Luis Gutierrez is always keeping an eye out for the next generation of dancers to carry on this tradition. He knows it may take a while for the younger dancers to fully understand how vital they are to the community. But Chabela Sanchez says, when you see a danza Azteca performance and you feel that pull to the dance and your attention goes to the dancers, that's your heart being conquered. You want to be a part of it. She says, we'll dance united, we'll dance together. For The California Report, I'm Sebastian Nina Buccelli.
1: And just a note that a version of Sebastian's story first aired on KALW. And now, in honor of Day of the Dead and Halloween week, we've got a story for you. It's about spirits and some mischievous kids. Storyteller J.P. Frary, who's a six-time winner of the Moth Story Slam, brings us this tale from his childhood in Mendocino County.
7: I had to give up my bedroom to our super sad grandma when she came to live with us. This was a year after grandpa died, and us kids never called her that to her face, but always behind her back. Even my parents started calling her super sad grandma whenever she would stay locked up in my bedroom, which was most days. My mom would say something like, go tell super sad grandma that dinner's ready. I, I mean, go get your grandmother for dinner. She was still wearing black dresses every day, and she went to church a lot. So I got moved into the attic with the slanted ceilings where you could only stand up straight if you were right in the middle of the room. It had these exposed splintery rafters that I kept bumping my head on. And the furnace was up there, and it looked like some sort of giant mechanical octopus with the pipes heading off in different directions. I protested the move at first. It was creepy up there. But my sisters, they already shared a room and there was no way super-sad grandma could climb that ladder. I was 12 then, and I wasn't getting along with my sisters. They were some kind of unified front that always voted against me whenever my folks let us choose anything. If I wanted to play Monopoly, they voted for Mystery Date. If I wanted fish sticks for dinner, they said macaroni and cheese. I wanted a dog, and they made us get a cat. I felt isolated and outnumbered. So the greatest day of my life was when my cousin Dennis's parents got divorced. I don't mean that like it sounds. I'm sure it was terribly sad for them and I know it was sad for him too. But they were so flat broke and each of them was trying to figure out their own lives so neither his mom or his dad could take him with them yet. I begged my parents to let Dennis live with us. He was my age and he was the closest thing I had in the world to a brother. The day he climbed that creaky ladder into the attic, it was like winning the lottery. We went everywhere together, riding bikes through the orchard to talk with neighbor girls who smoked cigarettes, catching a bunch of crawdads in the Russian river, letting them all go in the same deep pool just to see if they would fight. Sometimes we'd even outvote my sisters and get to watch a western or professional wrestling on the TV. It was the answer to my prayers to have an instant brother. Every night, we'd lie in our beds up in the attic and talk and talk and talk until one of us fell asleep. There was a furnace pipe that ran right next to Dennis' bed, and one night, long after we'd been yelled at to go to sleep for the fifth time, he cocked his head and he said,
3: I can hear Johnny Carson.
7: My parents were in the living room watching TV, and the furnace pipe next to Dennis' bed led directly to a vent over the couch they were sitting on. The two of us put our ears against the metal furnace pipe, and we could make out every word Johnny was saying. His guest that night was Robin Williams. We stayed glued at the hip with our heads on the furnace pipe until the closing music. The next day, we went from pipe to pipe to pipe, putting our ears up against them. We could hear into every room in the entire house. We listened to my sister talk on the phone in the kitchen we listened to my mom and dad in their bedroom arguing about whether or not to buy a second car. And we listened to super sad grandma whispering words we could not make out at all until we realized just by the rhythm that she was saying the rosary over and over. At first, we just listened to listen. But being 12-year-old boys, it quickly escalated to full-on spying. It became our evening entertainment. We both learned about menstruation from listening to my mom explain what was going on to my younger sister's body to her, but we couldn't let on that we knew she had just gotten her first period because we were spies. Tracing the pipes back to the furnace, we saw that each pipe had a big sliding gate before it attached to the metal housing, and we realized that you could pull that door open, and not only was the sound clearer, you could also send sound the other way. So Dennis could be down in the kitchen getting us root beers, and I could say into the pipe,
5: Get ding-dongs and corn chips too.
7: And he could hear me. It became this big game where we were talking to each other all over the house without anyone knowing. It was the week before Halloween, and the whole family, except super sad grandma, was watching Night of the Living Dead, when my older sister, just out of the blue, said she didn't believe in ghosts or zombies. And the way she said it, it was like she was saying that Dennis and I did believe in ghosts or zombies. I made eye contact with him, and I think we both had the same idea at exactly the same time. When the movie was over, Dennis and I went straight up the ladder and right to the pipe that connects to my sister's room, and we listened in. We waited until we thought we heard my sisters get in bed. And once we didn't hear them moving around, we started making moaning ghost sounds. And then we put our ears against the pipe and listened. but We didn't hear anything, so we made more and louder ghost sounds. And then we listened again, but we didn't hear them scream or anything and I don't know where it came from, but I started whispering really loudly.
2: I'm waiting
1: for you.
7: We went on and on for 20 minutes, and there was no reaction from their room. And that's when I noticed that the furnace pipe door to my old bedroom, which was now super sad grandma's, was also open. We had been sending ghost sounds to her too. I snuck down the ladder, And I saw my sisters at the dining room table sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of my mom, who was braiding their hair. So they weren't even in their bedroom. And I looked at my old bedroom door, but it was shut. And I couldn't see any light coming from underneath. So I just crept back up the ladder. The next morning at breakfast, super sad grandma wasn't wearing a black dress anymore. She had on regular grandma clothes. And she looked a lot less sad somehow. And my dad asked her how she was feeling. And she said, I finally got an answer back from Grandpa. He said he will wait for me. To this day, I don't know if she knew it was me and my cousin Dennis talking, or if she thought it was Grandpa speaking to her from the great beyond. But I do know she never wore black again.
1: J.P. Frary is a storyteller and a woodworker who makes art and furniture in Alameda. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria León. Our director is Susie Racho. And Brendan Willard is our engineer. Jessica Carissa is our intern. And special thanks this week to Meadu Park Steinfeld. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. And hey, don't forget to vote.
0: Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking.